Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to be reading from the New King James, it reads a little bit differently than your ESV, if that's what you use, but you should be able to follow along, okay? So give now your attention to this reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 3, reading down to verse 14. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since the day we heard, or since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this very reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we give You thanks for Your Word. For indeed, it is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. How we rejoice that the Holy Spirit so effectively and powerfully wields that sword. And we are asking you now, in this portion of our worship, to effectively work within us who hear your word proclaimed. Father, we recognize that without the power of the Spirit upon the preacher, that there's not going to be a sermon. It'll just be a lecture. 
But Father, we need, we need the power of the Spirit and the proclamation of your word in order for it to change us. And we have already confessed in this worship service before you and before each other that we are sinners. And because we know that, we recognize that we need to be changed. So, Father, we pray that you would work powerfully, not only in the preacher, but in those who hear the proclamation of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am actually finishing a series of sermons. You may not have known that, but I'm going to spill the beans now. Start, I'm doing a series. I've been doing a series on Paul's prayers in the, past, in the prison epistles. Everything that I've touched on, Ephesians, the two prayers in Ephesians, the one in Philippians, uh, and the one today, are all coming out of Paul's prison epistles. Ephesians, he offered two prayers for those believers. The first one, primarily what he's praying for is for them to be enlightened or for them to be illumined by the power of the Spirit so they can understand what's going to be recorded, what he's going to write in the rest of the book. And then chapter 3, we come to the next prayer in Ephesians. And there he's praying that God would strengthen them. And the implications I mentioned is that they would then need that strengthening to fulfill all the Christian duties that he sets out before them in chapter 4 to the end of the book. In, in the, his prayer for the Philippians, he prayed that their love would abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. The point there was, yes, they need to have a growing love, but it can't be separated from that knowledge and that discernment. Love needs safeguards. And then we come to the text today, and Paul prays for God to give these people, to grant these people the knowledge of God's will. And there's a good reason for why he prayed that. It's because there were these false teachers that had arrived at the church of Corinth, and that had caused their pastor, Epaphrodite, Epaphras, to travel to Rome to seek out Paul where he was in prison to help him deal with these false teachers. Paul's response was to write a letter to that congregation in order to refute the heresy that had come there to Colossae. The heresy was influenced by Greek philosophy and Jewish legalism. It's rather significant that Paul's primary attack against these false teachers was not a direct denunciation of their false teaching or an ex- ex- of, of their false teaching or the exposing of their false views. His focus in defending the truth was to point these believers to the person and the work of Christ. And Paul shared this prayer 
that he probably did this quite regularly for this congregation. He shared this prayer with the believers in Colossae because he wants them to understand the need that they have for the Lord to answer this prayer in their lives so that they would be able to overcome those false teachers in their midst. Now keep in mind, what we have in front of us is an inspired prayer. Do you believe that? This is inspired. <clears throat> Which means what? Not only does this prayer come to us from the heart and the mind of the Apostle Paul, it comes to us from the heart and mind of our dear Savior. Understand, Christ desires for this prayer to be answered by God the Father in your life, which means you need to pray this prayer for yourself. The first thing we're going to look at is the motivation that Paul had for offering these prayers for the believers. That motivation is in verses 3 through 8. I want you to notice at verse 9, Beginning to verse 9. In my text, it reads, for this reason. You might read something different, but the point is, Paul is beginning verse 9 by explaining that what he wrote in, in verses 3 through 8 is what's motivating him to pray for them. And I'm just going to briefly mention these. He was thankful to God that they believed. Verse 4. And he was thankful to God that they love all the saints. Actually, he covered that in the first prayer for the Ephesians. Love for all the saints. Some of us are more lovely than others, aren't we? Oh, okay. I, that hit kind of hit a raw spot there. But the point is, we all recognize that, but we all should have. A love for all of God's people because not only is everyone who's a Christian made in the image of God, but we have Christ indwelling us who are believers. And we need to understand God's love for you is not more than His love for somebody else who's a Christian. His love for... I remember hearing something about that. In Sunday school this morning. His love for you is infinite. Do you believe that? His love for fellow believers is infinite. The reason why Christ died on the cross for you and me and every believer is because of his immeasurable love for us all. We should indeed love each other. But then he moves on. And by the way, I love the love that I enjoy in this congregation to see the interaction, the loving interaction that you all have for each other. Next, this is he says in verse 5, he's thankful to God because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Now, he's not talking about hope in heaven as though heaven is the object of the hope. He's explaining where that hope is. 
Where is it? Well, if you can look at it real quickly, verse 12, where he talks about, this is the end of the verse, qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. That's what he's talking about here. That hope is that inheritance that we have even now in heaven. So this is what's motivating the Apostle Paul to pray for these believers. I'd like to point out that verses 9 to 20 is actually one sentence in the Greek. So we're only looking at a major portion of this one long sentence. Um, Paul typically wrote these really long sentences, and they get a little complicated. So this is a good place to cut off there at verse 14. He begins with that petition in the middle of verse 9, which reads, he says he does not cease to pray for you and to ask, and here it is, that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So that's the basic petition. The basic matter of this prayer is to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And one of the things that really drives this whole point to us, why this is so important, at the end of the book, I want you to look in chapter 4 and look at verse 12. Epaphras was their pastor. And so this is what the Paul writes regarding Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers, and here it is, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Is that your desire? To stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Oh yeah, we need to pay attention to the word all there. We do. And I'd also like to point out that in this text, every time you read you, it's plural. Paul was a southerner. He said, y'all. But the point here is, he is praying this prayer for God to answer that to the church at large, to the church in general there in Colossae. That doesn't mean that Paul doesn't expect God to answer this prayer in the individual lives of the believers that are hearing this letter read. That's what they would have done. The first time they got this letter from Paul, they would, the next Sunday, they would have gathered and said, what did Paul write to us? And they would have heard it read in their congregation, the whole letter. We should always remember, always keep in mind the corporate nature of Christianity. The Bible does not teach lone wolf Christianity. All of us are at different levels of our spiritual progress. And we need help from each other. And so we need to encourage each other to 
Seek the Lord to fill us with the knowledge of His will. Now, notice the verb here is passive, that you may be filled. Well, we would understand that it's God who would be doing that filling. But that doesn't mean that you and I do not have an individual responsibility in making good use of all the means of grace, the available means of grace, to also bring this about in our lives. God's sovereignty doesn't cancel out human responsibility. The problem is sometimes we think it's all up to us. No. Don't ever think that. Don't ever think that. The word here for knowledge is a very significant one because it's, it, it's emphatic. The idea of that word is to have a full knowledge or maybe even better a thorough, accurate knowledge. That's what the word conveys. Now, God's will refers to how we are to live and to what we are to believe. So Paul is praying that there would not be any gaps in their knowledge of God's will that would make them susceptible to the doctrinal errors of those false teachers or would result in sin. So often, when someone drifts away from orthodoxy, guess what? They drift, they, they go into sin. They go into sin. So this is why this is so important. And It's important that we recognize that this is important because we need to apply the knowledge of God's will to every area of our life. Now, let's suppose that I asked my son Severin to, to wash my car. And he says, okay, Dad. And he washes it using a steel wool. Do they still make Brillo pads? Now, Dad, it's, I got it done. Didn't it look great? Well, what about all those scratches, Dad? Well, you know, but it sure got it clean, right? Do you think that he had a good knowledge of my will? No. I expected him to use some wisdom, to use some understanding which means he should have used a soft cloth to wash my car, or sometimes we call it a chamois, rather than using a steel wool pad. But how many times have people said, well, I obeyed God. But it's like washing the car with a Brillo pad. And I want to point out, and if you have an ESV in front of you, um, I'm very glad that the ESV... um, put the word spiritual before wisdom. That word spiritual goes with both wisdom and with knowledge. Okay. Wisdom and spiritual understanding. Excuse me. All, all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
What's the point? Why would Paul use that adjective? It's because he's pointing us to the fact that what he is talking about here, if it's spiritual, it means it's produced by the Holy Spirit. Christianity is not a do-it-yourself, yes-you-can-you-can-do-it religion, which is actually what I was raised with, sadly. So was my wife. We're thankful that the Lord brought us to the Reformed faith. And that was in the Lord's hands. The word wisdom refers to the ability to exercise proper judgment, which means achieving the best ends by using the best results. And then this is done in connection with the application of the knowledge of God's will to every situation in life. If you let that sink in, that's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? I mean, that's... The word translated understanding expresses the insightful use of knowledge through discernment. The word conveys the idea of critical evaluation and contemplation. And as one Greek scholar put it, the putting together of the facts and information and drawing conclusions and seeing relationships. I remember hearing a story about two seminaries and the students would share the same public library. Two seminaries in the same community, but they shared a public library. And people who would see the students from these various seminaries it didn't take them long to figure out what seminary anybody there in the library came from. Because one set of seminarians, they'd have the book open or the books open, and they would be frantically taking notes and just writing things down, just getting as much information as they could. But the ones from the other seminary would read... And then would sit back and think about what they just read. And then they would take some notes. And then they would read some more. And then they would stop and they would think about what they just read. Oh, that's how you're supposed to read the Bible, by the way. I don't know about you, but somebody came to candidate in the church where I was, and I found out that the candidate came from the one where they quickly wrote down everything, you know, out of the, I'd say, I'm not too sure about that, man. He might still preach all right, but the one that would take the time to think things through, I would think that's the kind of man that a congregation would want to call. That's probably the kind of man that Cooper is. I don't know. But you see, I think you're getting my point. I think you're seeing the point here. See, understanding is needed for wisdom to function at its fullest.
capacity. And both wisdom and understanding are needed. Not only to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, but to actually properly apply it to our lives. It's very important that we see in the same book, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3. Referring to Christ, Paul wrote this, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is making it abundant and clear that Christ is the source of what they need in order to fulfill the will of God. The knowledge of God's will comes from the scriptures and from prayer. Question three of the Shorter Catechism. What do the scriptures principally teach? Hopefully you've memorized this. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Keep in mind, you cannot know the will of God without letting your mind marinate in the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit does not work in a vacuum. Both orthodoxy, when it comes to doctrine, and morality are two necessary elements of your life. God is not just interested in what you believe. He is interested in how you live. A lady that I know that she probably still lives in Wilmington, North Carolina. Her daughter was about to marry her live-in boyfriend. And she asked her pastor, should I, and, and this, this, did I mention this? The daughter was about to marry her live-in boyfriend. And her pastor told her that she shouldn't go to the wedding. She wouldn't, you know, should I go to to my daughter's wedding? And the pastor said, no. Well, I mean, they were living in sin. But she wasn't comfortable with that advice. And so she asked me. I was there for pulpit supply. And I said, well, first of all, your daughter is not, a believer, and therefore she would not be violating the prohibition for a believer to marry an unbeliever. I also pointed out that their marriage would actually legitimize their relationship. And I also pointed out that not going would most likely alienate her from her daughter. And that I mean, you could have, I mean, the relief on her face, because that was her biggest concern. If she didn't go to the wedding, that her, her daughter would cut her off. I never, I'm sure she went to the wedding. I don't know. And I could share other things like that. The point is, there are some situations where, like, here's one pastor said, don't go. And I'm thinking, but I think she should. 
There's a woman that I knew in Gaffney who became a Christian, and she asked her pastor, who's a friend of mine, if she should marry her live-in boyfriend. She had children from a previous boyfriend and children with the current boyfriend. And the pastor advised her to marry the man because the state regarded them to be in a common law marriage anyway. And I'm thinking, you know, I didn't think about it at the time because it didn't involve me. I I knew the lady. I know the pastor. But I started thinking about it. I believe my friend gave her the wrong answer. She would be marrying an unbeliever contrary to God's law. Her children would have, if she married this man, her children would have the influence of an unsaved father in the home. And we learn from John chapter 4, this is verses 16 through 18. This is where Jesus deals with the woman at the well, or sometimes she's just called the woman of Samaria. But we know from John chapter 4, verses 16 and 18, that Jesus does not regard living together as marriage. Now, I don't know, hopefully you agree with me, and I could tell you time after time of other things where it's just really difficult to sort things through, and we need the wisdom of God. We need the scriptures. We need the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul moves from the petition to the purpose of this prayer, starting with verse 10. He begins with, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing that you might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. That's why they needed to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And that had to be accompanied with all wisdom and spiritual understanding to enable them to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. And understand that the purpose here that he states there at the beginning of verse 10 is a part of his prayer. Paul is not going to be satisfied just with God filling them with this wisdom of, or this knowledge of his will. He wants for God the Father to answer that prayer in terms of also bringing about that purpose. To walk fully, to walk, excuse me, worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Paul then develops that thought by presenting four ways by which we walk worthy of the Lord. And what I want you, I hope I can get this across to you. What Paul is doing here is presenting things in a logical logical sequence, but they're actually, it's in reverse. I'll try, Paul does this, 
I would encourage you to look for him when he does this. It's not always easy to detect, but this is what's happening here. So the idea here is, first of all, okay, how do I walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him? You do it being fruitful in every good work. Being fruitful in every good work. That's the goal. That's what Paul is ultimately pointing to them to, is being fruitful in every good work. And if you have your EFE, it says, bearing fruit. Paul here is using an illustration out of agriculture. When he goes here and he talks about being fruitful in every good work, He comes to the next point. The second one is increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing, and it really would be better translated, increasing by means of the knowledge of God. My New New King James has increasing, but it really is a word here that primarily refers to the growth of a plant. It could be translated just that, growing, growing in the knowledge of God. And again, it's by means of the knowledge of God. And so the idea is, okay, I want to be fruitful. What do I need to be fruitful? You need to grow in the knowledge of God. Just as a plant needs to grow and needs to develop in order for it to become a fruit-bearing plant, there needs to be this increase. This is what Paul is getting at here. But then, okay, I, I need to be productive. I need to in, grow in the, by means of the knowledge of God. But where does this growth come from? Being, verse 11, being strengthened with all, my, all might according to his glorious Patience. Now, I mean, his glorious power. Jerry, follow the, how Paul is doing this, how he is structuring this, so that this builds. And so, look at the means of this strengthening. <clears throat> That's with strengthened with all might. Strengthened with all might. The, the Greek word for strength, strengthened, and the Greek word for might have the same root. It'd be like saying strengthened with all strength or empowered with all power. Paul is making this statement. He wants them to understand that he's being very emphatic here. This is proof, again, that Christianity is not the result of our personal effort. 
Understand? You cannot sanctify yourself. You can't do it. If you try, you'll fall on your face. I'm not saying that you don't have a responsibility in your sanctification. I like the way one, I think it was Sinclair Ferguson put it, What drives a ship, a sail, sailing vessel forward is the wind. In the same way that the Holy Spirit drives the Christian forward. But, guess what? Somebody has to hoist the sails to catch the wind. Are you getting this? And that's, our part is making good use of the available means of grace. And my text reads, with all might, it would be better with every might, so that we would understand that we need this enablement. We need this enablement for each of our Christian duties. I think it's very important that we understand that. Even if you take it with all, it's still going to come out, I think, the same. But notice, he gives us the measure of this strengthening. That comes in the phrase, according to his glorious power. According to his glorious power. We've run across this in previous messages that I've preached. Here, according to means at a level consistent with. At a level consistent with. And so, it's not just merely out of God's power. It's according to, at a level consistent with. So according to his glorious power. And then what is he pointing to? What is the reason for why they also need to be strengthened? Yes, they need to be strengthened so that they can increase, they can grow By means of the knowledge of God, they need that growth to become fruitful in every good work. But Paul also points us to the fact that this strengthening is also for every, for all patience and long suffering. The word there that's translated patience, it's not the same thing as waiting it out. Don't know what you mean by patience? Waiting it out. Lord, give me patience. Help me to wait it out. No. This word means to bear under difficulties and hardships. That's what that word's about. That's why you need to be strengthened as well, because you need to endure. And the word here that's translating long-suffering um, Believe it or not, what it actually means is to suffer long. I know that's amazing, right? But no, the idea, and it really is, but it's to suffer long in reference to other people. It has to do with dealing patiently, as we think about it, with people who would irritate us, rub us the wrong way. That's the idea. That's what he's pointing to. Is He's talking about tolerating irritations that refer to how we would respond to other people. 
And then we have that phrase, it's the end of verse 11, at least in, in my version, with joy. Now some take the phrase with joy, with what follows, with joy giving thanks. I don't believe that that's the proper connection. I believe it's, we need to be strengthened for all, you could say endurance here, and long-suffering with joy. The way one commentator put it was this way. Is joy not rooted in the soil of suffering is shallow? That's, that's a pretty good point. And the, the person is bringing out again that horticultural or gardening idea as well. The fourth thing that we need to be able to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, comes there at the beginning of verse 12, giving thanks. I want you to keep in mind that Paul expressed to the Colossians the reason why he was motivated to pray for them was because of his thanksgiving to God for them. One of the things that should motivate you and I, one of the things that should cause us to want to fully please God, to walk worthy of the Lord, and to fully please Him, is our gratitude for what God the Father has done for us through His Son. Now, notice... It says, giving thanks to the Father who. Now, a lot of times a who, both in English and in, and in Greek, has the ideas because. A good way of translating this would be giving thanks to the Father because he has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance. And it's the inheritance of the saints in light. So we have here three reasons for why we should give thanks to God the Father. It's because He has qualified us to be heirs. And what are the credentials of heirs? He's already mentioned them in verses 4 and 5. Faith, love, and hope. Also, the phrase here, in light, it describes the inheritance and not the saints. It describes that inheritance. See, the light here is in contrast to what he speaks about in the following verse, (coughs) which is the power of darkness. And so... The point here is that your inheritance is in the light, in that God is light, and when you are eternally in His presence, you will be engulfed in His brilliance. But right now, your inheritance is in that divine light and glory. Then he goes on and says that, We are to give thanks to God because He delivered us 
from the power. I have power. You have dominion in the ESV if you're using that. Um, He has delivered us from Satan's kingdom. He's delivered us from that. The word actually is translated dominion or power really is the word that's usually translated authority. The Lord's broken that. And he conveyed, I like the way the New American Standard puts it, transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. It's a very emphatic instruction here. Paul calling Jesus the Son of the Father's love is stronger than just the Father's beloved Son. It actually is a stronger way of presenting how the Son is the object of the Father's love. And then notice in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. The redemption there is the forgiveness of sins. The question here is, are you thankful for the redemption that you have through Christ? Are you thankful that He has qualified you? That He has delivered you? That He has transferred you? And understand that before this prayer can be answered in your life, there has to be a motivating gratitude you could even say a motivating love for the Father for what He has done for you in Christ. Why would you desire for God to answer this prayer in your life that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom, excuse me, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding? And why then these following, this following purpose that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing? Why would you desire that? If it's not out of gratitude to God. A battleship was cruising one night when the captain was informed that there was a light straight ahead. The captain asked if the light was moving. He was informed that it was not. That meant that they were on a collision course. So the captain gave orders for a message to be signaled to the other ship. You are on a collision course. I advise you to change your course 20 degrees. The reply came back. I advise you to change your course 20 degrees. Well, the captain didn't like that. He was irritated at that. So, he ordered another message to be signaled. I am a captain. Change your course. The reply came back. I am a seaman second class. Change your course. Now he's furious. He is absolutely furious. So, he ordered that another message be signaled to the other ship 
I am a battleship. Change your course. The reply came back, I am a lighthouse. Change your course. (laughs) Well, the captain responded differently that time. He changed his course. See, the captain delayed making the proper response for lack of knowledge. And when he had that knowledge, he was able to use wisdom to make the proper judgment, having discerned his situation. In a similar way, you need the knowledge of God in order to give him the proper response as you grow in the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It is my prayer. And it needs to be your prayer that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That you may Walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and growing in the knowledge, actually by means of the knowledge of God. Strengthen with all might, according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to be partakers of of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Our Father, we we give You thanks for this prayer, but also the other prayers that Paul shared with those congregations that he wrote to while He was in that Roman prison. Lord, may we reflect upon those prayers. May we realize we need to pray those prayers for ourselves, and this one also. We trust you for this. We pray that you would indeed fill us with the knowledge of your will so that we can walk worthy of you, fully pleasing you. And we ask this. In Jesus' name, amen.